What up, though? And welcome back to another episode of Rejects Book Club. Yay! With me, Constance, I'm here to read you a chapter a day. We are finishing The Last Unicorn. It's such a good story. Thanks for sticking with me. I'm like literally having, you know, that moment where you finish, you're like in the last episode or the last few minutes of a great movie or the last chapter of a great book. I'm kind of sad, but I got another one coming right at you uh, this weekend. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's let's do it. Ah, uh, we're here. The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Chapter 14. Once the sea had taken back their diamond-shaped footprints, there was no sign that they had ever been there, any more than King Haggard's castle had been. The only difference was that Molly Grew remembered unicorns very well. Hmm. It's good that she went without saying goodbye, she said to herself. I would have been stupid. I'm going to be stupid in a minute, anyway. But it really is better like this. Then a warmth moved over her cheek and into her hair like sunlight, and she turned and put her arms around the unicorn's neck. Oh, you stayed, she whispered. You stayed. She was about to be very foolish then and ask, Will you stay? But the unicorn slipped gently from her and moved to where Prince Lear lay, with his dark blue eyes already losing their color. She stood over him as he had guarded the Lady Amalthea. She can restore him, Spendrick said softly. A unicorn's horn is proof against death itself. Molly looked closely at him, as she had not done for a long time and she saw that he had come at last to his power and his beginning. She could not say how she knew, for no wild glory burned about him, and no recognizable omens occurred in his honor, just at that moment. He was Smendrick the Magician, as ever, and yet, somehow, it was for the first time. It was long that the unicorn stood by Prince Lear before she touched him with her horn, for all that her quest had enjoyed ended for all that her quest had ended joyously, there was weariness in the way she held herself and a sadness in her beauty that Molly never seen. It suddenly seemed to her that the unicorn's sorrow was not for Lear, but for the lost girl who could not be brought back, for the Lady Amalthea, who might have lived happily ever after with the prince. The unicorn bowed her head and her horn glanced across Lear's chin as clumsily as a first kiss. He sat up blinking, smiling at something long ago. Father, he said in a quick, wondering voice. Father, I, I had a dream. Then he saw the unicorn and he rose to his feet as the blood on his face began to shine and move again. He said, I was dead. The unicorn touched him for a second time over the heart, letting her horn rest there for a little space. They were both trembling. Prince Lear put his hands out to her like words. She said, I remember you. I remember. When I was dead, Prince Lear began. But she was away. Not a stone rattled down after her. Not a bush tore out as she sprang up the cliff. She went as lightly as the shadow of a bird. And when she looked back, with one cloven foot poised and the sunlight on her sides, with her head and neck absurdly fragile for the burden of the horn, then, each of the three below called to her in pain. 
She turned and vanished, but Molly Grew saw their voices thump home in her like arrows. And even more, then, she wished the unicorn back. She wished that she had not called. Prince Lear said, As soon as I saw her, I knew that I'd been dead. It was so the other time, when I looked down from my father's tower and saw her. He glanced up then and drew in his breath. It was the only sound of grief for King Haggard that any living thing ever made. Was it I? He whispered. The curse that said I would be the one to bring the castle down? But I would never have done it. He was not good to me, but it was only because I was not what he wanted. Is it my doing that he's fallen? Smendrick replied, If you had not tried to save the unicorn, she would have never turned the red bull and driven him into the sea. It was the red bull who made the overflow and set the other unicorns free. It was they who destroyed the castle. Would you have it otherwise, knowing this? Prince Lear shook his head, but he said nothing. Molly asked, But why did the bull run from her? Why didn't he stand and fight? There was no sign of him when they looked out to the sea, though he was surely too vast to have swum out of sight in such a short time. But whether he reached some other shore, whether the water drew even his great bulk down at last, none of them knew until long after, and he was never seen in the kingdom again. The red bull never fights, Smendrick said. He conquers, but he never fights. He turned to Prince Lear and put a hand on his shoulder. Now, you are the king he said. He touched Molly as well, said something that was more of a whistle than a word, and the three of them floated up in the air like milkweed plumes to the top of the cliff. Molly was not frightened. The magic lifted her as gently as though she were a note of music, and it was singing her. She could feel that it was never very far from being wild and dangerous, but she was sorry when it set her down. No stone of the castle remained, nor any scar. The earth was not even a shade paler where it stood. Four young men in rusty, ragged armor wandered gaping through the vanished corridors and turned around and around the absence that had just been the great hall. When they saw Lear, Molly, and Smendrick, they came running towards them laughing. They fell on their knees before Lear and cried out together, Your Majesty, long live King Lear! Lear blushed and actually tried to pull them to their feet. Never mind that, he mumbled. Never mind that. Who are you? He peered in amazement from one face to the next. I know you. I do know you, but how can it be? It is true, your majesty, the first of the young men said happily. We are indeed King Haggard's men-at-arms, the same who served him for so many cold and weary years. We fled the castle after you disappeared into the clock. For the Red Bull was roaring and all the towers were trembling and we were afraid. We knew that the old curse must be coming home at last. A great wave took the castle, said the second man-at-arms, exactly as the witch foretold. I saw it go splitting down the cliff as, er as slowly as snow. And why did we not go with it? I can't tell. The wave parted to go around us, another man said, as I never saw any wave do. It was strange water like the ghost of a wave, boiling with a rainbow light, and for a moment it seemed to me, he rubbed his eyes and shrugged and smiled helplessly. I don't know. It, it was like a dream. But what has happened to you all, King demanded, 
you were old men when I was born. Now you're younger than I am. What miracle is this? The three who had spoken giggled and looked embarrassed, but the fourth man replied, It is the miracle of meaning what we said. Once we told the Lady Amalthea that we would grow young again if she wished it so, and we must have been telling the truth. Where is she? We will go to her aid if it means facing the Red Bull himself. King Lear said, She's gone. Find my horse and saddle him. Find my horse. His voice was harsh and hungry, and the men at arms scrambled to obey their new lord. But Smendrick, standing beside him, said quietly, Your majesty, it may not be. You must not follow her. The king turned and looked like haggard. Magician, she's mine. He paused. And then he went on in a gentler tone, close to pleading. She's twice raised me up from death. And what will I be without her but dead for a third time? He took Smendrick by the wrist with a grip strong enough to powder bones. But the magician didn't move. Lear said, I am not King Haggard. I have no wish to capture her, but only to spend my life following after her, miles, leagues, even years behind, never seeing her, perhaps, but content. This is my right. A hero is entitled to his happy ending when it comes at last. But Smendrick answered, This is not the end, either for you or for her. You are the king of a wasted land, where there has never been any king but fear. Your true task has just begun. And you may not know in your life if you have succeeded in it, but only if you fail. As for her, she's a story with no ending, happy or sad. She can never belong to anything mortal enough to want her. Most strangely then, he put his arms around the young king and held him for a long time. Yet be content, my lord, he said in a low voice. No man has ever had more of her grace than you. And no other will ever be blessed by her remembrance. You have loved her and served her. Be content and be king. But that's not what I want, Lear cried. The magician answered, not a word, but only looked at him. Blue eyes stared back into green, a face grown lean and lordly, into one neither so handsome nor so bold. The king began to squint and blink, as though he were gazing at the sun and it was not long before he lowered his eyes and muttered, So be it. I will stay and rule alone over a wretched people in a land I hate. But I will have no more joy in my rule than poor Haggard ever had. A small autumn cat with a crooked ear stalked out of some secret fold in, his, in the air and yawned at Molly. She caught him up against her face, and he tangled his paws in her hair. Spendrick smiled and said to the king, we must leave you now. Will you come with us and see us in friendship to the end of your domain? There's much between here and the, there's much between here and there that's worth your study, and I can promise you that there will be some sign of unicorns. Then King Lear shouted for his horse again, and his men searched for it and found it, but there were none for Smendrick and Molly. Yet when they came back with the king's horse, they turned at his amazed stare and saw two more horses trailing docilely behind them, one black and one brown, both already saddled and bridled. Smendrick took the black for himself and gave the brown to horse to Molly. She was afraid of them at first. Are they yours? She asked him. Did you make them? Can you do that now? Just make things? The king's whisper echoed, 
The king's whisper echoed her wonder. I found them, the magician answered. But what I mean by finding is not what you mean. Ask me no more. He lifted her into the saddle and then leapt up himself. So the three of them rode away, and the men-at-arms followed on foot. No one looked back, for there was nothing to see. But King Lear said once, without turning, It's strange to have grown into manhood in this place, and then to have it gone, and everything changed, and suddenly to be king. Was none of it real at all? Am I real then? Smendrick made no reply. King Lear wished to go swiftly, but Smendrick held them to a leisurely pace and a roundabout road. When the king fretted for speed, he was admonished to consider his walking men, though they, marvelously, never tired for all the length of the journey. But Molly soon understood that the magician was delaying in order to make Lear gaze long and closely at his realm. And to her own surprise, she discovered that the land was worth the look. For very slowly, spring was coming to the barren country that had been King Haggard's. A stranger would have not noticed the change, but Molly could see that the withered earth was brightening with a greenness and a shyest smoke. Squat, snaggly trees that had never yet bloomed were pulling forth flowers in the way that an army sends out scouts. Long, dry streams were beginning to rustle in their beds, and small creatures were calling to one another. Smells slipped by in ribbons, pale grass and black mud and honey and walnuts, mint and hay and rotting applewood, and even the afternoon sunlight had a tender, sneezy scent that Molly would have never known anywhere. She rode beside Smendrick, watching the gentle advent of the spring and thinking of how it had come to her, late but lasting. Unicorns have passed here, she whispered to the magician. Is that the cause? Or is it the Haggard's fall and the Red Bull's going? What is it? What's happening? Everything, he answered for her. Everything, all at once. It's not one springtime, but 50. And not one or two great terrors flown away, but a thousand small shadows lifted from the land. Wait and see. Speaking for Lear's ear, he added, Nor is this the first spring that has ever been in this country. It was good land long ago. And it wants little but a true king to be so again. See how it softens before you? King Lear said nothing, but his eyes roved left and right as he rode, and he could not but observe the ripening. Even the Valley of Hagsgate, of evil memory, was stirring with all manners of wildflowers, columbine and herbal, lavender and lupine, foxglove and yarrow. The rutted footprints of the Red Bull were growing mellow with mallow. But when they came to Hagsgate, deep in the afternoon, a strange and savage sight awaited them. The plow fields were woefully torn and ravaged, while the rich orchards and vineyards had been stamped down, leaving no grove or arbor standing. It was such shattering ruin as the bull himself might have wrought, but it seemed to Molly grew, as though fifty years' worth of foiled griefs had stuck Hagsgate all at once, just as the many springtimes were at last warming up the rest of the land. The trampled earth looked oddly ashen in the late light. King Lear said quietly, What is this? Ride on, your majesty, the magician replied. Ride on. The sun was setting as they passed through the overthrown, the overthrown gates of the town and guided their horses slowly down the streets that were choked with boards and belongings and broken glass, with pieces of walls and windows, chimney, chairs, kitchenware, roofs, bathtubs, beds, mantles, dressing tables, 
every house in Hagsgate was down. Everything that could be broken was. The town looked as though it had been stepped on. The people of Hagsgate sat on their doorsteps whenever they could find them, considering the wreckage. They had always had an air of paupers, even in the midst of plenty, and real ruin made them appear almost relieved at no whit pow- po- and no whit poorer. They hardly noticed Lear when he rode up to them until he said, I am the king. What has befallen you here? It was an earthquake, one man murmured dreamily, but another contradicted him, saying, It was a storm, a nor'easter straight off the sea. It shook the town to bits, and hail came down like hoofs. Still, another man insisted that the mighty tide had washed over Hagsgate, a tide as white as dogwood and heavy with marble, that drowned none and smashed everything. King Lear listened to them all, smiling grimly. Listen, he said when they were done. King Haggard is dead, and his castle has fallen. I'm Lear, the son of Hagsgate, who was abandoned at birth in order to keep the witch's curse from coming true, and this from happening. He swept an arm around at the burst houses. Wretched, silly people. The unicorns have returned. The unicorns. That you saw the Red Bull hunting and pretended not to see. It was they who brought the castle down, and the town as well. But it is your greed and your fear that have destroyed you. The townsfolk sighed in resignation, but a middle-aged woman stepped forward and said with some spirit, It's all a bit unfair, my lord, begging your pardon. Uh, what could we have done to save the unicorns? We were afraid of the Red Bull. What could we have done? One word might have been enough, King Lear replied. You'll never know now. He would have wheeled his horse and left them there, but a feeble, ropey voice called to him, Lear, little Lear, my child, my king. Molly and Smendrick recognized the man who came shuffling up with his arms open, wheezing and limping, as though he were older than he truly was. It was Dren. Who are you? The king demanded. What do you want from me? Dren pawed at his stirrups, nuzzling his boots. You don't know me, my boy? No. How should you? How should I deserve to have you know me? I am your father. Your poor old overjoyed father. I am the one who left you in the marketplace on that winter night long ago and handed you over to your heroic destiny. How wise I was and how sad for a long time and how proud I am. My boy, my little boy. He could not cry real tears, but his nose was running. Without a word, King Lear tugged at his horse's reins, backing him out of the crowd. Old Dren let his outstretched arms drop to his sides. This is what it is to have children, he screeched. Ungrateful son, will you desert your father in the hours of his distress when a word from your pet wizard would have set everything right again? Despise me if you will, but I played my part in putting you where you are, and you dare not deny it. Villainy has its rights, too. Still, the king would have turned away, but Smendrick touched his arm and leaned near. It's true, you know, he whispered. But for him, but for them all, the tale would have worked out quite another way. And who can say that the ending would have been even as happy as this? You must be their king, and you must rule them as kindly as you would a braver and more faithful folk, for they are part of your fate. Then Lear lifted his hand to the people of Hagsgate, and they pushed and elbowed one another for silence. He said, I must ride with my friends and keep them company for a way. 
But I will leave my men-at-arms here, and they will help you begin to rebuild your town again. When I return, in a little time, I will also help. I won't begin to build my new castle until I see Hagsgate standing once more. They complained bitterly that Smendrick could do it all in a moment by means of his magic, but he answered them, I could not, even if I would. There are laws that govern the wizard's art, as laws command the seasons and the sea. Magic made you wealthy once, and when all other in the land were poor, but your days of prosperity are ended, and now you must start over. What was wasteland in Haggard's time shall grow green and generous again, but Hagsgate will yield a living exactly as miserably as hearts that dwell here. You may plant your acres again and raise you up and raise up your fallen orchards and vineyards, but they will never flourish as they used to, never, until you learn to take joy in them for no reason. He gazed on the silent town folk with no anger in his glance, but only pity. If I were you, I would have children, he said. And then to King Lear, how says your majesty, shall we sleep here tonight and be on our way at dawn? But the king turned and rode away out of the ruined Hagsgate as fast as he could spur. It was long before Molly and the magician came up with him, and longer still before they lay down to sleep. For many days they journeyed through King Lear's domain, and each day they knew it less and delighted in it more. The spring ran on before them as swiftly as fire, clothing all that was naked and opening everything that had gone long shut that had long ago shut up tight, touching the earth as a unicorn had touched Lear. Every sort of animal, from bears to black beetles, came sporting or shambling or scurrying along their way. And the high sky, that had been as sandy and as arid as the soil itself, now blossomed with birds swirling so thickly that it seemed like sunset most of the day. Fish bent and flickered in the whisking streams, and wildflowers raced up and down the hills like escaped prisoners. All the land was noisy with life, but it was the silent rejoicing of the flowers that kept the three travelers awake at night. The folk of the villages greeted them cautiously and with little less dourness than they had shown when Smedrick and Molly first came that way. Only the oldest among them had ever seen the spring before, and many suspect, suspected that rampaging greenness of being a plague or an invasion. King Lear told them that Haggard was dead and that the bull was gone forever, invited them to visit him when his new castle was raised, and passed on. They will need time to feel comfortable with flowers, he said. Wherever they stopped, he left word that all outlaws were pardoned, and Molly hoped that this news would come to Captain Cully and his merry band. As it happened, it did, and all the merry band immediately abandoned the life in the greenwood, saving only Cully himself and Jack Jingley. Together, they took up the trade of wandering minstrels and were reported to have become reasonably, po reasonably popular in the provinces. One night, the three slept at the farthest frontier of King Lear's kingdom, making their beds in high grass. The king would bid them farewell in the morning and return to Hagsgate. It will be lonely, he said in the darkness. I would rather go with you and not be king. Oh, you'll get to like it, Smendrick replied. The best young men of the villages will make their way to your court, and you will teach them to be knights and heroes. The wisest of ministers will come to counsel you, and the most skillful musicians and jugglers and storytellers will come seeking your favor. And there will be a princess in time, either fleeing her unspeakable wicked father and brothers or seeking justice for them. 
Perhaps you will hear of her. Shut away in a fortress of flint and adamant. Her only companion, a compassionate spider. I don't care about that, King Lear said. He was silent for so long that Smendrick thought he'd fallen asleep. But presently he said, I wish I could see her once more, just to tell her all my heart. She will never know what I really meant to say. You did promise I would see her, the magician answered him sharply. I promise only that you will see some sign of unicorns, and so you have. Your realm is blessed beyond any lands deserving because they pass through it in freedom. As for you and your heart and the things you said and didn't say, she will remember them all when men are fairy tales in books and written by rabbits. Think of that and be still. The king spoke no more after that, and Smendrick repented on his words. She touched you twice, he said in a little while. The first touch was to bring you back to life again, but the second was for you. Lear did not answer, and the magician never knew if he heard or not. Smendrick dreamed that the unicorn came and stood by him in moonrise. The thin night wind lifted and spilled her mane, and the moon shone on the snowflake crafting of her small head. He knew it was a dream, but he was happy to see her. How beautiful you are, he said. I never really told you. He would have roused the others, but her eyes sang him a warning as clearly as two frightened birds, and he knew that if he moved to call Molly and Lear, he would wake himself, and she would vanish. So he said only, they love you more, I think, though I do the best I can. That is why, she said and he could not tell what she was answering. He lay very still, hoping that he would remember the exact shape of her ears when he did wake in the morning. She said, You are a true and mortal wizard now, as you've always wished. Does it make you happy? (laughs) Yes, he replied with a quiet laugh. I'm not poor Haggard, to lose my heart's desire and the having of it. But there are wizards and wizards, There is black magic and white magic and the infinite shades of gray between, and I see now that it is all the same. Whether I decide to be what men would call a wise and good magician, aiding heroes and thwarting witches, wicked lords and unreasonable parents, making rain, curling Worcester's disease and the mad staggers, getting cats down from trees, or whether I choose the retorts of full elixirs and essences, the powders and herbs and banes, the padlocked books of grammary bound and skins better left unnamed. The muddy mist darkening in the chamber and the sweet voice lisping therein. Why, life is short. And how many can I help or harm? I have my power at last, but the world is still too heavy for me to move. Though my friend Lear might think otherwise. And he laughed again in his dream, a little sadly. The unicorn said, That is true. You are a man, and men can do nothing that makes any difference. But her voice was strangely slow and burdened, she asked. Which will you choose? The magician laughed for a third time. Oh, it will be the kind magic, undoubtedly, because you would like it more. I do not think that I'll ever see you again, but I'll try to do what would please you if I knew. And you, where will you be for the rest of my life? I thought you would have gone home to your forest by now. She turned a little away from him 
and the sudden starlight of her shoulders made all his talk of magic taste like sand in his throat. Moths and midges and other night insects, too small to be anything in particular, came and danced slowly around her bright horn. And this did not make her appear foolish, but then most wise and lovely as they celebrated her. Molly's cat rubbed in and out between her forefeet. The others have gone, she said. They're scattered to the woods they came from, no two together, and men will not catch sight of them much more easily than if they were still in the sea. I will go back to my forest too, but I do not know if I will live contently there or anywhere. I've been mortal, and part of me is mortal yet. I'm full of tears and hungry and the fear of death, though I can't weep, and I want nothing, and I can't die. I'm not like the others now, for no unicorn who was ever born could ever regret, but, but I do. I regret. Spendrick hid his face like a child, though he was a great magician. I'm, I'm so sorry. I am, I'm sorry, he mumbled into his wrist. I've done you evil, as Nikos did to the other unicorn, and with the same goodwill. And I can no more undo that than he could. Mommy Fortuna and King Haggard and the Red Bull together were kinder to you than I. But she answered him, she answered him gently, saying, My people are in the world again. No sorrow will live in me as long as that joy save one. And I thank you for that, too. Farewell, good magician. I will try to go home. She made no sound when she left him, but he was awake, and the crooked-eared cat was meowing lonesomely, turning his head when he saw the moonlight tremble in the open eyes of King Lear and Molly Crew. The three of them lay awake till morning, and nobody said a word. At dawn, King Lear rose up and saddled his horse. Before he mounted, he said to Smendrick and Molly, I would like if you came to see me one day. They assured him they would, but still he lingered with them, twisting the dangling rings about his finger. I dreamed about her last night, he said. Molly cried. So did I. And Smendrick opened his mouth and then closed it again. King Lear said hoarsely, By our friendship, I beg you, tell me what she said to you. His hand gripped one hand of each of theirs, and his clutch was cold and painful. Smendrick gave him a weak smile. My lord, I so rarely remember my dreams. It seems to me that we spoke solemnly of silly things, as one does. Grave nonsense, empty and inconvincent, evanescent. The king let go of his hand and turned his half-mad gaze on Molly Crew. I'll never tell, she said, a little frightened, but flushing oddly. I remember, but I'll never tell anyone. If, if I die for it, not even you, my lord. She was not looking at him as she spoke, but at Smendrick. King Lear let her hand fall as well, and she swung herself into the saddle so fiercely that his horse reared up across the sunrise, bulging like a stag. But Lear kept his seat and glared down at Molly and Smendrick, with a face so grim and soured and sunken that he might as well have been as king as long as Hagger before him. She said nothing to me, he whispered. Do you understand? She said nothing to me, nothing at all. Then his face softened, as even King Haggard's face had gone a little gentle when he watched the unicorns in the sea. For that moment, he was again the young prince, who had liked to sit with Molly in the scullery. He said, 
She looked at me in my dream. She looked at me and never spoke. He rode away without goodbye, and they watched him until the hills hit him, a straight, sad horseman going home to be king. Molly said at last, Oh, the poor man, poor Lear. He's not fair so badly, the magician answered. Great heroes need great sorrows and burdens, and half of their greatness goes unnoticed. It is all part of the fairy tale, but his voice was a little doubtful, and he laid his arms softly around Molly's shoulders. It cannot be ill fortune to have loved a unicorn, he said. Surely it must be the dearest of luck of all, though the heart is earned. By and by, he put her as far from him as his fingers in and asked for her. Now, will you tell me what she said to you? But Molly grew only laughed and shook her head till her hair came down, and she was more beautiful than the Lady Amalthea. The magician said, very well, then I'll find the unicorn again, and perhaps she'll tell me. And he turned calmly to whistle up their steeds. She said no word while he saddled, she said no word while he saddled the horse. But when he began on her own, she put her hand out on his arm. Do you think, uh, do you truly hope that we may find her? There was something I forgot to say. Spindrick looked at her over his shoulder. The morning sunlight made his eyes seem gay as grass. But now and then, when he stooped into the horse's shadow, there stirred a deeper greatness in it, greenness in his gaze. The green of pine needles that has a faint, cool bitterness about it. He said, I fear it for her sake. It would mean that she too is a wanderer now. And that fate is a fate of human beings and not for unicorns. But I hope, of course, of course I hope. Then he smiled at Molly and took her hand in his. Anyway, since you and I must choose one road to follow out of many that run into the same place in the end. It might as well be the road that a unicorn has taken. We may never see her, but we will always know where she's been. Come then. Come with me. So they began their new journey, which took them in its time in and out of most of the folds of the sweet, wicked, and wrinkled world, and so at last to their own strange and wonderful destiny. But that was all later, and first, not ten minutes out of King Lear's kingdom, they met a maiden who came hurrying toward them on foot. She was dressed torn and smirched, but the richness of its making was still plain to see. As though her hair was tumbled and bramble, her cheeks scratched and her face dirty, there was no mistaking her for anyone but a princess in a woeful dress. Smendrick lightened down to support her. She clutched him with both hands as though he were a great fruit hull. A rescue! She cried to him, a rescue, all oh, secure, and you be man of middle and sympathy, aid me now. I hight the princess Alison Jocelyn, daughter to good King Giles, and him foully murdered by his brother, the bloody Duke Wolf, who hath taken my three brothers, the princess Corin, Colin, Calvin, and cast them into a fell prison as hostages, that I will wed with his fat son, Lord Dudley, but I bribed the sentinel and, and sopped the dogs. But Smendrick the magician raised his hand and she fell silent, staring up at him in wonder out of wild lilac eyes. Fair princess, he said gravely to her. The man you want just went that way. 
and he pointed back towards the land they had just let left. Take my horse, and you'll be up with him while your shadow is still behind you. He cupped his hand for the Princess Alice and Jocelyn, and she climbed wearily in some bewilderment to the saddle. Smendrick turned to the horse, saying, You will surely overtake him with ease, for he will be riding slowly. He's a good man, and a hero greater than any cause is worth. I send all my princesses to him. His name is Lear. Then he slapped the horse on the rump and sent it off the way of King Lear, the way he had gone. And then he laughed for so long that he was too weak to get up behind Molly and had to walk behind the horse for a while. When he caught his breath, he began to sing, and she joined with him. And this is what they sang as they went together, out of this story and into another. I am no king, and I am no lord, and I am no soldier at arms, said he. I'm none but a harper, and a very poor harper, that am come hither to wed ye. If you were a lord, you should be my lord, and the same if you were a thief, said she. And if you are a harper, you shall be my harper, for it makes no matter to me, to me, for it makes no matter to me. But what if I prove it that I am no harper, that I lie for your love most monstrously? Why, then I'll teach you to play and sing, for I dearly love a good harp, said she. The End what a great story thanks for joining me this is literally my favorite book <laughs> and we're gonna do another one pass it on tell a friend let me know what you think thank you all see you tomorrow <laughs>